What's up, everybody? I'm Val, and this is Emmy. Hello. I'm assuming that only people we know are going to listen to this. But in case you have found these tapes, help us. Emmy and I have a lot in common. We both like spooky stuff. It's been a while for us to try and put this together to get us both talking. Emmy and I are both like textbook introverts, but we're here now and we're both pretty excited about it. We've been having some technical issues with the internet so some things might be lost to the ether it's really windy here so like we're just gonna edit out like 75s hello i think we can just add it to the intro and like add a cool effect so it's kind of ghostly oh my god (laughs) so we're literally lost in the ether so the way this is going to go is Emmy's going to tell us about some paintings and an artist profile, and then I'm going to talk about a cryptid and some movies associated with it, and then we're both going to react and discuss to each other's sections. So without further ado, we're going to jump into Emmy's first painting. I literally feel like I'm like prepping for like a school project with all of these like I like cited my sources. I like got all these links and pictures. So let's... Oh my god, mine are just like, oh, some guy said this to some other guy and they saw this together <laughs> and we only have their word on it and nobody else knows <laughs> if it happened or it was made up <laughs> and a bunch of people died <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> So I kind of did two, I would say like 1.5, because I basically I'm focusing on The Ghost of a Flea by William Blake. And this was painted on, you know, around 1819. So like an over good overall description for, you know, the listener is that it's a very small painting. You have a figure in the middle and his right leg is extended slightly out. His back leg is starting to come up as he's stepping forward. His left arm presented in front of him with what looks almost like a bell, but it's a cup. And the idea is that inside is blood that the flea is consuming. His right hand is actually behind him, and his hand is actually, he has uh, his three ears extended, but his pointer and his thumb are actually pinching what I believe to be a tail. And so he's in this very provocative kind of pose, and his tongue is out and extended. He's hunched over, but he's also very, very strong. And the whole idea is that he is actively bloodthirsty. And the thing that I'm really interested about about really is that it looks like the setting of the painting is a stage and it almost feels like the stars in the background are the spotlights that are sort of illuminating his face but also there's a very very strong diagonal prevalent in this photo which was really common to see around renaissance era paintings and so this is a romantic era painting and it's really fascinating and surreal and it's actually my favorite thing is the dimensions of the physical painting is actually actually eight by six inches and there's pictures of it um, inside of the Tate Museum in the UK which is where it's currently housed and displayed and the painting is like so cute and tiny but the frame is 
absolutely like massive and gaudy and it makes the whole thing like a like a foot squared yeah that was like when we were at trivia the other night one of the questions was about paintings so obviously afterwards we looked it up and it was Mm -hmm. a picasso one and it was big as the wall i think it was guernica oh my god there really is something to be said about a massive oil painting like one of my favorite uh artists just straight up of all time is Caravaggio and he was a baroque renaissance era painter and his paintings are absolutely massive wall size like Picasso but they're also all oil paint and they're baroque so it's gaudy and the layers of paint like they have to be like hundreds of pounds just the physical painting it's insane because like like I have pretty minimal painting experience. I do paint. It's fun. I'm also not really good at it. It's really not my strength. And I focus mostly with like acrylics and I do some watercolor, uh, mostly just as like gifts and stuff. But um, acrylic, I love because of the opacity of the paint. I love shapes, like, you know, my style, really strong Mm -hmm. colors are like my forte. But um, with things like oil, but especially tempera, it's all about layering and movement, and uh, especially how the light is interacting with those different layers of paint and color and all kinds of stuff. And and so for William Blake to use tempera was actually a very purposeful choice, because this was in the 1800s, right? Tempera was actually very out of fashion. Everybody was really up in arms about oil paint because it was actually newer. It wasn't really around until like the 1500s or so or whatever. And uh, and before that, tempera was all anybody used. But William Blake was really, really focused on like religious iconography and kind of religion in general. The hate that this man had for the Church of England was profound. And it really sort of showed in like all of his art. The Ghost of a Flea is a bit of an outlier. Like a lot of his art are these like really interesting visual representations of of a mythos that William Blake himself created as a protest kind of to traditional religion. So you still have a lot of very familiar uh, icons and themes and symbols, but he kind of warps them in his own way to tell his own stories. Talk about an artist with a (laughs) specific viewpoint. And I like how in the painting too, there's like a light that shines up in his face and did you kind of look into what that creature is supposed to be if not dave batista oh my god right like honestly what a hunk like isn't this like physique goals honestly i think this flea for me is top tier gender euphoria this specifically the ghost of a flea depicts a nightmarish vision that blake claimed to have had some people think it was the product of psychedelic usage some people believe that it was a religious vision in its own right Um, but he literally had a waking nightmare in which he sat down with this beast this hulk of a man monster than man but still bipedal and and the monster This flea described to to William that every single flea on this planet Earth is inhabited by the ghost of an evil dead man. And by becoming a flea, they get to drink blood. Wow. Yeah, because I was like... I know! (laughs) It's called flea, but it's so interesting how it like juxtaposes (laughs) with what it actually looks like. 
And yeah, if I saw yeah. that in my dream, I would be like, demons are real. They're coming for me. <laughs> right? I'd be like, this is it. I was right. Ha ha ha. You guys suck. <laughs> yeah, its face kind of like looks he... like Nosferatu a little. <laughs> yeah, like the the way that like, because his, his neck is so short. Yeah, one of the first things I thought to looking at it was that it was someone on stage because it almost looks like those are curtains in back of him yeah that's honestly what i think and i was really tempted to look up some dissections of the painting but i didn't really want to go too deep because i'm not necessarily interested in the painting's symbolism um, in context for the time painted, I'm honestly more interested in the fact that this is a horrific painting. This is a depiction of a straight up monster. And it's really fascinating to me that something like this was and is seen as like classical art, religious vision, totally normal for that guy, Bill. Like they just <laughs> created these horrific monsters. And then like William Blake had had supporters and patrons and people who were into what he was doing. And so it's just so interesting to me that something so monstrous was created at that time where, you know, they didn't even have the, the concept of a horror genre. So for them to make this, and then I see it now in 2023, and I'm like, that's horror, is really fascinating to me. Yeah, because sometimes I even think when I draw stuff, like, Val, is this a little too weird? Is this strange? <laughs> and then I look at that and I'm like, well, I could be drawing that. <laughs> I also find it interesting, too, because uh, William Blake had really, really strong political opinions, moral opinions, and everything. Um, he was very politically opposed to the Church of England. He was fascinated with what was going on in the Americas and in France, um, their political upheaval. And he was always like, I want some of that. And, and one of the things I found really funny was that he was actually disappointed with the outcomes of both the French and American Revolution. <laughs> he was like, this isn't sick enough. <laughs> oh my god, the multiple beheadings in France were not enough. <laughs> no it wasn't enough he wanted like full political reform so the thing about william blake and i am so deeply fascinated with his art but his politics i do not care because at the end of the day he was still deeply sexist yeah i was gonna say it is kind of an edgelord move to say that the french revolution wasn't <laughs> extreme enough it's like we all know that was pretty bad like you don't gotta right? go out of your way to say i, I want it worse literally yeah, my notes are like sexist, frowny face. One of my sources said um, uh, he, that he was seen as the original anarchist due to his harsh and rebellious views. A good quote is, much of his poetry recounts in symbolic allegory the effects of the French and American revolutions. Erdman claims Blake was disillusioned with the political outcomes of the conflicts, believing they had simply replaced monarchy with irresponsible mercantilism. And I didn't know what mercantilism was. It's like an economic theory that trade generates wealth. And I do actually remember uh, kind of learning about that in school. I mean, like what he said, I feel like is is and was accurate and poignant, but it is very... You know, I have opinions about politics, but I'm not going to do anything about it because it doesn't actually affect me. Yeah, or like, 
I'm not going to go vote. (laughs) There's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Yeah, well, get fucked. I don't know, man. Like, Like, I need to consume crops. Like, I don't know what you want from me. (laughs) So, yeah, I really, really dig this painting. I'm always a big fan of, like, the physical body as a subject and the way that William took sort of like a a human body, but he kind of see in the back, especially how he added vertebrae and he added a lot of muscle structure that isn't really there normally, but it's also really funny because the painting is eight by six inches and, you know, a flea is this tiny little bug. So the idea that you have this big, angry, hulking character, but in reality, it's smaller than your pinky nail is a really funny dichotomy. And I almost feel like it's kind of poking fun at criminal men. Now that you mentioned the size again, it's like, it is so muscular, but it's a tiny painting. So you're looking at it and it's like, oh, it is like a itty bitty flea close up, just jacked. <laughs> yeah, like he's like literally like a jacked mad flea, but he's trapped in this like tiny little box with his little thimble of blood. And it, it feels very, um, very futile, honestly, the more you think about it. Yeah, almost like he's kind of imprisoned because of his bad deeds and sexism Mm -hmm. and all he can do is work out yeah (laughs) yeah all he can do is like just be angry and work out (laughs) just incel ghost of a flea that's the contemporary version yeah right oh my god (laughs) i need you to make william blake fan art of (laughs) this creature at a computer like feverishly typing on reddit or something yes Absolutely. I really like that there's still such a strong diagonal that the composition is very, very strong. I feel like everything about the painting very masculine almost, which just makes it funny that it was just this one-off nightmare. Because there was a lot of thought put into it. And I've even seen like sketches that William did in preparation for this painting. And literally when he tells John Varley about what happened, he literally says that Blake told him that the apparition appeared before him, posed for him, and explained what he was and what he does. Like, really? You you really expect me to believe that like you just had like a night terror and now you're producing this painting? <laughs> I just like the fact that he specifically says that the flea posed for him. (laughs) Posed. Posed. So you're telling me that the pose in this painting, this flea is flexing at me? Bro, check it. I drink your blood while you're asleep. Right? Like, there's something very sensual about it on Bill's part. (laughs) Come on, Bill. I am not attracted to the flea. But I mean... (laughs) If someone told me they dreamt that up, I'd be like, you were thinking about those muscles a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So um, another thing I found out was I so like this is so silly, right? Because I probably knew this, but I just did not pay attention to it. But um, I, I thought that William Blake was just a painter, but he's actually also very, very well known for his poetry. And his poetry is very politics based. And that's why I do not care about it. But I think it is worth (laughs) note that he was like multifaceted and he was a very important figure um, at this time. Yeah, I feel like that's nice. He's at least writing. 
you know. <laughs> right? In touch with his feelings. His feelings of hating women. He's got a lot of important ideas. <laughs> Not only did I, you know, look through Ghost of the Flea and I was like, ooh, ah, uh, this is so neat. But as I'm looking through what else has William Blake painted, I very quickly notice a picture that I've seen like all the time. And it's called The Great Red Dragon and the woman clothed by the sun. So obviously this painting is much brighter than The Ghost of a Flea. It's bigger as well. And so this depicts the backside of what appears to be a demon. He doesn't have arms. It's just wings. This is another um, representation of a very, very muscular back and legs. And he has a very long tail that goes down the painting. His wings are up and extended and they cover probably two thirds of the painting, especially the upper two thirds. This was another one where I actually had difficulty reading what was happening within the painting because for the longest time, and I'm literally talking years, I have never noticed the second figure at the bottom of the painting. I've only ever noticed the great red dragon. Oh my god. Yeah, there's like a angel at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And so you have this uh, figure wings up legs are also spread out a bit and he is standing over the figure of a woman her hands are in a prayer pose she has a very classical looking face and she is swathed in a very bright golden yellow orange light which is supposed to represent the goodness and the sunlight it almost looks like they're slightly painted in different styles you know Yes. So something I've noticed about William Blake is that he actually tends to, to work in a bit of mixed media. Like he would use watercolor, oil, graphite, tempura, all kinds of stuff. And, and his main focus was being able to control the way that light was interacting with the painting. So the cool thing, too, about the Red Dragon is this is part of sort of William's mythos. So I, I kind of thought that was interesting because a lot of people tend to say that William Blake wasn't really popular until he died. But it really seems like he was a very prolific member of the art community. The name, it definitely sounds familiar. Yeah, right. He was so progressive and so incredibly ahead of his time. He's definitely cited very often. But again, he hates women, and I will never forget that. Honestly, is even prevalent in this painting, the fact that he hates women. And, and he hates women in the way that he believes they are the weaker sex, that they are less favorable, they are always under men, and that's just how it works. It's very telling to me the way that he has positioned these two figures within this painting. Of course, the Great Red Dragon is, is supposed to represent Satan. It is supposed to be this dark force coming in and trying to quell the spread of Christianity. It, that, that doesn't mean you have to position the woman to be lying prone with her arms above her head begging this figure. That's very dehumanizing for women. Most people wouldn't really read that in, but I think it's very interesting. And it makes sense considering his views. And the fact, too, that it took me so long to even be able to distinguish the woman out of the painting is very, very interesting to me. The woman could just not be there, <laughs> and the painting will change. Yeah, it's almost like he drew the dragon first, and then he was like, I can get a dig in here. <laughs> right? Like, let me, oh, shoot, I was supposed to, it's an allegory. It's not just more, like, homoerotic monster fucker fiction. Is William Blake the bi-icon we've been looking right? for? Right? Like, 
honestly he's just ahead of his time i don't know so the reason also why this image may be familiar to some people and why it was familiar to me is um this was actually heavily featured in thomas harris's um hannibal series specifically a book called red dragon yeah Uh, i did uh yes he has the tattoo Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. The tattoo of the dragon. Isn't that like crazy? Yes. <laughs> I was like, no way. Literally, what are the odds? Such a big fan of like Thomas Harris and like that whole series and universe. I even used to watch the TV show with Mads Mikkelsen. Like, I am in it. And I actually really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was pretty good. I loved the Silence of the Lambs book. Oh my god. Yes. Yes. So um, the Red Dragon story, so book and movie, it is the direct prequel to Silence of the Lambs. And so this is where you get to meet. Um, He's um, the <laughs> serial killer, right? Not Hannibal Lecter, though. Yeah. So so in this story or at this point in time, Hannibal Lecter is still in prison and Clarice Starling is not yet in the FBI. She's still training. This is years before they ever meet. And another detective is working with Hannibal Lecter to catch a serial killer called the Tooth Fairy. The Tooth Fairy is the gentleman who has the Great Red Dragon tattooed on his body. Because for him, the Great Red Dragon, you know, since it does represent in some ways, some people who who misconstrue, you know, imagery and whatever, and they warp this idea that Satan is power. And that's why you kind of see that character really obsess over the idea of becoming the Great Red Dragon. It's his absolute fixation. And so it's a very heavy motif throughout the entire book, and especially the movie. Will Graham is the, t- the detective who works with Hannibal Lecter before Clarice Starling. So he's basically the main character of the Red Dragon. I do remember that. My buddy Nathan used to be obsessed with Red Dragon. And every time I would go over his house, he would ask me if I wanted to watch it again. <laughs> I love that. And and honestly, too, like, it's kind of interesting that we've been sort of joking and alluding to this homoeroticism, you know, when it comes to this hyper focus on like a male physique and a male form, because that was also, in my opinion, very prevalent in the Red Dragon. It was something that that the serial killer was even like battling with at times. Yeah, I wonder if there was any intention behind that in the movie related to William Blake himself. You know, maybe there was a little bit more thought behind sort of the artist and the art and like what it would mean within the story. But yeah, so I thought The Great Red Dragon was like a really cool little little addition. Like I was so excited. And and it's really kind of opened my mind to this whole world that William Blake created because I've never really taken the time to sit down and look at his whole repertoire of art and art pieces and I'm actually realizing how close it is to my own art and especially my photography and the things that I'm drawn towards but he still hated women so yay I'm I'm genuinely one of those people who I don't believe that you can separate the art from the artist I was thinking about how the new Harry Potter game just came out. There's so much art by people that aren't problematic that we could consume that it's like right. we 
can just make the choice. Like there's no shortage of art, which is what I feel like it seems like people are stressed about when they try to make that argument. It's really that simple. You know, it's just sad. It's just sad that people can't seem to understand that it really is just that easy. And it does matter. And it's just, you know, you want to play the game so bad, that's great. Good for you. But now I know where you stand. Go play Kirby like the rest of us. Because that's better, you know? (laughs) A worthy, a real working man's game is Kirby (laughs) and the Forgotten Land. (laughs) Yo, I'm still on Kirby Star Allies on the DS. (laughs) That was my favorite game besides Animal Crossing. There was like a, there was one that I used to play on GameCube and it was like a Kirby racing game, but I wouldn't even play the game. I would just drive around. Do you ever like in the racetrack drive backwards? So it's just, it never ends. (laughs) I, you know, I, I think I did, but I think I would just go in circles because it was in like another kind of city setting and there were so many Easter eggs as Nintendo tends to do. So I would just like not really play the game i would kind of like sandbox it but um forgotten land is much more story driven so there's not too too much like freedom in like a sandbox sense but it's still a a pretty open map that's definitely the game on the switch i want to get next but yeah so that's kind of really what i was been looking at i i really just enjoy this painting and thank you for letting me share it with you anything final comments Questions, concerns, lots of concerns uh, about William Blake, but no, <laughs> anything know, right? right now. Dude, I literally, I was, I was like reading his bio and I was like, oh man, this guy sounds cool as hell. And then I like kept looking and I was like, there's a catch, right? So I literally Googled what, like, what does William Blake think of women? And it was like, <laughs> William Blake does not like them. And I was like, ah, ah found it. I found it. There just needs to be a website specifically with a feminism meter. Oh my god! Yes, yes. There's a there's a website called Does the Dog Die, and so you can look up movies to see if the dog in it dies, and it should be the same thing. Is this guy a misogynist? Yes, no. (laughs) (laughs) They should just join forces, and that one website can do both. (laughs) That would be a money maker. Absolutely, I would be on there all the time. Oh my god, yes. Uh, okay, I'm ready for the awoos and, and the critters. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> One singular woo, please. In a segment I'd like to call Tales from the Cryptid, I want to research a little critter and then find some movies or shows that go along with it. My interest has been werewolves lately. This term can broadly refer to an individual that can shapeship into a wolf, a wolf-human hybrid. And depending on the location, other animals such as livestock, crocodiles, dogs, tigers, owls, wear hippopotamuses in some areas. In beast form, they're thought to be uncontrollable and insatiable. And wounds that they may receive in their beast form may also transfer over to their human form. And there's a bit of folklore in the United States where someone claimed to have been attacked by a werewolf and stabbed its leg in self-defense. And then later the same day, the town physician had a gash on his arm. So obviously those two events were related. (laughs) 
And actually, one little fun fact I found, the word lycanthropy, which is also a term for werewolfism, shares a meaning with the actual psychological term used to refer yes. to someone convinced they are a werewolf, which honestly, I don't even know if that helps the patient if you use the same term, <laughs> like thinking about it. I, I see you're desperately in love with the moon. I'm going to call it lunacy. Why did they need to make it sound so appealing? That's something that would have been in my Tumblr bio. <laughs> Lunatic. I'll be here all night. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, tell me more. Okay, so some of the causes of someone being a werewolf can be hereditary condition, a curse, <laughs> surviving an injury from a pre-existing werewolf, or by wearing a wolf skin belt, such as in the case of a German man named Peter Stumpf in the 1500s, who's also known as the werewolf of Bedburg. Livestock were being torn open to shreds, and farmers assumed there was a predator afoot. I would just love if they assumed the cows were doing that to each other. <laughs> <laughs> just They can't even stand up. <laughs> did yes. this guy with the belt was it a situation where he wore it and he believed he was a werewolf or was the idea that the item was magic and when he, when he wore it the powers of the werewolf or third option did he <laughs> have to wear it under a full moon so in my research, I didn't see related to the full moon. It was just kind of belt on or off for this particular huh? guy. And it seems like he believed he was a werewolf when he was wearing it. But eventually when they catch him, he's just a guy wearing a skin, acting kind of animalistic. Wow. So people didn't see him transformed, but... If you see a guy wearing a wolf skin, it's kind of like if he's moving really fast, you know, in public, he looked kind of just like a regular guy and he was pretty well respected in town. And as I was looking this up, I was like, oh. in hindsight, he's probably just not so different from serial killers, kind of, because that was kind of what it reminded me of, because he was hunted down by other people after human body parts were discovered in a field. And people were shocked that he was the one they caught up with and they arrested him. He confessed to killing at least 25 people, a bunch of acts of cannibalism involving women, children, relatives. And then he was horrendously tortured to death via stretching, burning, oh. bone breaking, and a finale of his head being cut off. And actually, some people think he could have been innocent. He could have been railroaded and forced to confess through all that torture. Really? A scapegoat? But yeah. We'll never know. He died in 1589. Were there other um, suspects? Or was like he the guy? It's said that they think he was the guy because he was the one they caught up with after the trail of body parts was kind of left. But... Mm -hmm. Could it have been just kind of wrong person, wrong time? Was he just mm -hmm. on a stroll in the woods and a mob showed up? But wow. after the torture, he did allegedly confess and said there was like witchcraft involved, the devil. But then I'm kind of like Salem witch trials. That's listing like all the things you could mm -hmm. do in this time. That's immoral. 
through the church right like i'm a witch please right. just let and me go <laughs> yeah right i also just wonder if he was mental and really believed that he was wolf that's why i was kind of curious about if there were any rules around the bell i was just like damn that was a lot <laughs> and then he just died and they were like well hooray so <clears throat> throughout history werewolves have gone by many different names as far back as medieval france the lugaru meaning wolf wolf man beast garu is a term that refers to a person taking an animal form most often it's a werewolf just culturally it's thought that these stories of creatures actually came over to canada from french settlers during the 1600s and in french culture Ooh. The Lugaru is a tie to the idea of morality, which is a really common theme throughout a lot of the werewolf lore. A bad Christian or Catholic could be cursed to be a Lugaru every night for 101 days. And then after that, they're able to pass the curse to someone else. While in Whoa. wolf form, these guys differ because they retain their human intelligence. And typically, the blood of the cursed person needs to be spilled by someone else in order to break the curse and reveal their human form. In 1767, sightings of a Lugaru disguising himself as a human begging for money and food spread around Quebec City. Newspapers at the time even warned people of its presence. So there were actual articles released saying, be careful, there's a werewolf afoot. Oh my god. And these papers like followed it and they reported repeated attacks that the people made against the beast until eventually it faded into obscurity. And there's no kind of real verification oh. if these attacks actually happened because it's kind of hard to verify some of these things, you know, before we can just take a photo of it. But I thought it was interesting mm -hmm. that papers really wrote about it because it just shows how entrenched the lore is yeah they're right there next to vampires yeah the original french lugaru is actually the father of the louisiana rougarou the term rougarou comes from lugarou if you're in the southern united states best beware you're following lent and the ten commandments or the Rougarou might get you. Like the Quebecois counterpart, the Rougarou also maintains its awareness and intelligence. It's kind of seen in Southern culture that it's almost an anti-hero where it leaves alone or even protects those that are societal outcasts and it goes after the corrupt. It sort of has a humanoid appearance wow. with a man-like body and a wolfish head. So there were also werewolf sightings that made their way down to Maine. In 2000, Ooh. the Rockwell family went into their yard at night and they saw a yellow set of eyes staring back at them. This woman claims to have seen a werewolf and I kind of abridged a quote by her. She said, you're just mesmerized. The leg, the thigh reminded me of a kangaroo. The foot, it had a very long arch like a human. As much as they looked like canine paws with very long nails, the color of their fur was a light brown, smooth on their body. They had a hunchback. And she goes on to say that the hair was very scruffy. The nose was very long. Wow. And supposedly she was just out walking her dog out back as you do at night, as my parents do all the time. <laughs> 
<laughs> and allegedly she saw a werewolf but i mean i was looking at the demographics on gray wolves in america and i was like could i have seen one in massachusetts because i was driving home like one night after a shift at ikea and it was probably mm-hmm. like midnight when i got home Mm-hmm. And I pull into the driveway and it looks like there's just a pack of wolves. And people try to convince me that they were coyotes, which I mm-hmm. definitely like could be convinced. But it was the fact that they loomed over my car when I pulled in made mm-hmm. me think they were wolves because that's like bigger than I've ever seen any type of coyote or anything like that. I've seen probably the craziest canine in around uh, where Brendan lives. We were driving home at like 3 a.m. And the biggest, and it was like really light colored and it was literally massive. And it stopped our car and another car, looked at our car and crossed the road. And I was like, we need to get home immediately. That thing knows where we live. I remember when I pulled in the driveway, my jaw dropped. I was Mm -hmm. like, if these things don't move, I can't get out of the car. It was the lightest colored wild canine that I've ever seen. It could be a gray wolf. Mm -hmm. But then I'm like, was it a red wolf? Is there an Arctic wolf in Massachusetts? Like, do I need to go looking? (laughs) (laughs) My two favorite possibilities for both of our stories is that that it could be like a wolf dog. Because that's always like a big problem at one point. I don't know if it's a problem anymore, but like breeding dogs and wolves and then raising those hybrid animals, it's really hard and it's not for people. And I'm actually pretty sure it's quite illegal. So it's possible that it could have just been some weird genetic anomaly or, you know, you could have even seen like a pack of coyotes and wolf dogs or like something crazy because sometimes it can be like 99.9% wolf. But the other option is that somebody had an exotic pet that escaped. Because, you know, I I live in a pretty rural area and so does Brendan. And I'm like, I could be convinced that they were coyotes for sure. But it's Mm -hmm. like, I can't even explain how big they were. And if a coyote could even be that big. Oh, man. Or could too. It could be like a wolf and a coyote had babies or maybe a wolf dog and a coyote. (laughs) yeah that is a possibility too i'm gonna have to look into that because that story like haunts me but yeah anyways i allegedly could have seen a wolf i'm like this lady in maine yeah i mean shocked and enamored oh my god her imagery (laughs) and it's like we can't prove her sighting either i could have just been like i just made that up as a creative writing project i didn't see anything (laughs) you know have you ever heard testimony of uh, people's bigfoot sightings because you will hear some of the funniest, most romanticized nonsense you will ever hear in your entire life. Because there's this whole facet of people who think that uh, Bigfoot is an interdimensional being come here to romance us humans. I think we should go in the woods and set up a camera. Yes. And then maybe we'll just see some cute possums and stuff. Right. Or we're going to find like a werewolf and we're going to like ruin our whole fucking week. Just one week. (laughs) Yeah, I'll get over it. Or maybe it'll be 101 days. Ooh, no, that sounds bad. (laughs) Yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, more please. So along with Maine, if we bop over to Wisconsin, during the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of sightings of a werewolf known as the Beast of Bray Road. So like I said before, 
I was looking up the population distribution of gray wolves in the United States. And actually, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, and Montana, which are mostly upper north states, had the highest concentration of wolves. And I was kind of wondering, could this be why there's so much wolf lore and sightings in Wisconsin? There's a map for everything. So I found a map (laughs) about their distribution in the U.S. And all the upper north states were like yellow, orange, red. Everything else was like zero. And like obviously kind of yellow being less and red being Minnesota. For some reason, there were so many there, which there's probably more wolves than people there, which I don't actually, that's not a fact. (laughs) I'm going to choose to believe that that was a fact. There are more (laughs) wolves than people in the state of Minnesota. Yeah, but how many wolf people are there? That's what I want to (laughs) know. You're asking the hard questions. We need more werewolf representation. Oh, don't worry. There's a straight-to-DVD movie from 2005 based off of these stories called The Beast of Bray Road. It's a horror movie written and directed by the same person, Lee Scott. The film follows a sheriff who's new in town, and his name is Phil. He's investigating his first case, a series of violent deaths, where people are just being torn apart in this kind of boondocksy Wisconsin town. And there's buzz in town that the beast is back. Phil teams up with the best hunter in town, this guy named Billy, his girlfriend Kelly, and this is Phil's girlfriend, a cryptozoologist named Quinn, and the local deputy Pamela, and they form a little dream team to track down this alleged werewolf. In traditional horror movie fashion, they prepare themselves with silver bullets and an anti-wolf serum that, (laughs) because science, it just works. And trust us on it. Yes. (laughs) one of my favorite parts of the movie is before they encounter the werewolf they do some investigating phil the sheriff goes to the local bar and he asks has this missing girl been here the bartender and she's like oh i think she was here with the lupus brothers the other day come on and i was like oh my god It's definitely a B-horror movie, but it's got its own specific charm. There's an altercation between the werewolf and Phil, Billy, and the hunter Quinn. During the scuffle, Billy gets bit by the werewolf, but Phil manages to shoot it in the leg. If you remember earlier, part of werewolf lore is if you're injured in beast form, it shows up in human form. It's soon revealed that Phil's girlfriend, Kelly, is now one of the werewolves, but she states she was bitten by somebody else recently. So now there's two. As their conversation continues, she states that she's lost control and she bites him while she's mid-transformation. As he's bitten, he lands a stab with the serum and it kind of slows her transformation down. So now she's like in the state of half werewolfism. Oh, God. The practical effects in this movie are a lot of fun, though. I like how... It seems like it was low budget. I couldn't find the actual budget online, Mm -hmm. but they took the practical route versus like, let's invest in some bad CGI. I love that so much. I might have to watch it. Free on YouTube. So one kind of fun thing that happens Mm -hmm. after this. So he's stabbed her. (laughs) Pamela, the deputy, shows up. It's Phil's word versus Kelly's as both of them are people at the moment because he halted her transformation. So he can't prove now that it's her. And they're both trying to convince Pamela to shoot the other one. 
Tragically, she shoots Phil, of course. Oh. Kelly attacks her, and then Billy shows up, sets her on fire. Billy was a bit earlier, so the movie ends with Billy and Phil just kind of accepting that they both have the werewolf curse now. I kind of liked that ending, because it just kind of shows the inevitability of the consequences of the curse. Because if you think about it, Phil's character, kind of a good lawman, and now he's probably going to kill people in werewolf form and not be able to do anything about it. It's ironic. Yeah, the movie was only 80 minutes long. Oh, budget. (laughs) Yeah, you can pretty much tell that the budget wasn't very large because the cinematography is a little rough around Mm -hmm. the edges. Like it was a fun creature feature. What I like (laughs) about it is it strikes me as a passion project. The writer and director were the same person. The dialogue made me cringe a few times, but (laughs) it's not unlike many horror movies especially B-horror movies of the early 2000s. Absolutely. Like some of the dialogue that the guys say to the girls, like in the bar, it's kind of like, ugh, like who wrote that, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know who wrote it. It was the director. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I have that with a lot of movies where it's like, please just get to the monster. Stop talking. Even if it's not Shawshank. I think art has a place and a purpose. And something I'll say all the time in my everyday life, I'll eat up any movie where the formula involves a gang of people being slowly picked off by a malevolent force. Alien. Annihilation. The Descent. Anaconda. The Thing. You name it. Even this next movie. You're so right. Oh my god. All right, tell me about this next one. Yeah, just think of all your favorite movies. And (laughs) once I put that together, I was like, oh my god, I can tell if I'm gonna like this movie or not. I am so picky about my horror. (laughs) But I will watch everything, even if I hate it. Yeah, Across the Pond in UK, Dog Soldiers (laughs) came out in 2002. British movie, also written and directed by the same individual a man by the name of neil marshall oh my god somebody stop this man not the same person as beast of bray road i mean (laughs) each movie the director and the writer were the same i literally like was trying to figure out how to say that that it wouldn't be confusing and i realized there was no way (laughs) there was no way i was literally like somebody please come get neil yeah, the other guy's name was Lee. I was like, oh my god, did they have the same first name? But yeah, wasn't it actually until after I watched both of these movies that I realized they were somewhat auteur? They were what? Auteurs when they were written and directed kind of by the same person or one individual has a lot of control. So a lot of times in theater, it refers to when the playwright and director and who controls a lot of the design are the same individual. So kind of oh. think of when you think of like, a Wes Anderson movie, a Stanley oh. movie. It's like that one person's signature and wow. ideas control most elements of the movie versus a fun collaboration between artists. That's really, really cool. I love learning new words. Oh my God, that's yeah. like my favorite word. It's the French word for author. So this one had a little bit bigger of a budget. Mm-hmm. 2.3 million pounds. It actually made 5 million in the box office. So it was more of a cult classic, but they still made their money back and then some. The movie starts with a couple on a camping trip. Together in their tent, 
the woman gives her partner a solid silver knife. Then something unzips their tent and attacks them. I just like the fact that the monster unzipped the tent to get them. Very gently. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. But yeah, it was like a very slow, like, and then you just see that something attacks them. And after that, it cuts to a man by the name of Private Cooper, and he's shown interest in joining a special ops team. But during kind of the initiation training exercise, I would maybe call it an audition for the team. (laughs) He fails when he refuses the order to kill a dog in cold blood. And I just thought this was a delightful bit of foreshadowing. Right. It's a werewolf movie, but it also provides some social commentary. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like it's a little juxtaposition between what war can do to desensitize a person over time versus a new recruit's perspective. Because Mm -hmm. he says, I'll kill a dog, but I won't kill that dog for no reason. He's kind of dismissed from being a part of the team. And then the movie flashes forward. Cooper's with a different team of soldiers in a remote area of the Scottish Highlands. And their mission is to execute a training exercise. So we see them sitting by a campfire, just kind of shooting the breeze. They're going around asking each other what they're really afraid of. It's rather lighthearted until one of the more experienced soldiers admit he's already seen his worst nightmare. In battle, he supposedly saw his friend blown up and the only recognizable part of him was a tattooed piece of skin. And he remarks that his friend always joked that Satan would save his skin in war. I almost want to look up if the director had any military experience. Yeah, like, do you think that this is kind of like a self-insert for this director? I feel like we all kind of put a bit of ourself in our characters, so. Yeah. So, they're at the campfire. Suddenly, a ravaged cow carcass drops in front of them. And they start investigating what's going on. Where did this come from? And they find a wounded soldier who they discover is the same special ops officer from earlier that wanted Cooper to shoot the dog. And he tells them, you have to get out of here. They'll come back. As they're trying to help this guy, they came back. And a fight ensues. One of their crew... A man by the name of Sergeant Wells is injured, but he survives. But as we know, Mm -hmm. if you survive an injury from a werewolf, it's going to happen to you. It's a woo time. (laughs) I just love after my research that watching these movies, something little like that would happen. And I'd be like, yep, I know it's going to (laughs) happen. I know that's how I feel listening to you like talk about it. I'm like, well, you said earlier. Yeah. And when I was kind of writing my summaries, I was like, this is a key detail. And I just know Emmy is going to make note of it. Oh, my God. Yes. I'm so into this. So who finds them? But Megan, a zoologist who happens to be (laughs) in the woods and she heard shots. Come on. This girl, Megan, she brings them back to an abandoned house where they take shelter. The lights go out and the werewolves launch their next attack. Megan is crazy and homeless. Yeah. Also, what if she's like a witch and this is her little cabin? Like, Dude, she's going to be like the werewolf mother or something. If someone said they'll come back and the first person that shows up is this lady, I'd be like, you are they. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Lights go out. Werewolves attack again. Somehow they found the house that they were at. Mm -hmm. The soldiers are like, well, 
if we can hold out until sunrise, we'll survive because they'll change back. So they're trying to kind of take shelter in the house. Their ammo supply starts to dwindle, so they launch an escape plan. Now, one pretty satisfying part in the movie is when Private Cooper tells off the special ops Captain Ryan. And he says, you know, I would rather die with my friends because Ryan's criticizing their methods and he reveals that Cooper's team doing their training exercise was actually just expendable werewolf bait and the exercise <gasps> was fake. Wow. It was all a ploy to try to capture a werewolf for military research purposes. Wow. Now, Cooper's obviously mad. Wells, whose injuries healed themselves very quickly... Oh, no. Which is kind of another werewolf trait you see a lot, is that they have rapid healing. He becomes enraged, too, and he begins to transform into a werewolf as a result of his anger. But he kind of gains control, and they try to do their escape plan, which involves blowing up the barn, where Megan says, I think they're hiding out in there. But she reveals she lied to them. Okay, Megan. <laughs> right? The owners of the house were the werewolves. It was just this family that had that curse. And she was also cursed after she initially came to the area for research. Now she says so she's she a part- So she is homeless and crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> now she says she's a part of their family and they hunt as a pack. Oh no. She begins to transform after that and it's a very cool, like slow, almost Michael Jackson thriller, like- eyes turn and then the body starts to turn i really liked it that's it was awesome. also practical effects in this movie that's awesome and as she's transforming well shoots her it makes you think about what's the line between human and creature because he shoots her while she's still recognizable as a person even though she's beginning her transformation yeah. So the werewolves start to close in, and Wells and Cooper are the only survivors. He gives Cooper a roll of film with a photo of one of the creatures as evidence for what happened there. He tells Cooper he needs to escape, and then in the house, Wells is with all the other werewolves, and he finds a way to alter the gas and start a fire and blow up the house. And the movie ends with a tabloid photo pop out with, like, werewolf attack, I thought the twist that they were actually werewolf bait was compelling, but I felt like it took a little while to get there. Since the movie was 2002, the picture's a little grainy. If you kind of suspend your disbelief, I think it still holds up well. I don't know. I like practical effects over CGI oh, yeah. any oh, day. Oh my god. I can even tell you how disappointed I was as a teen when the Hobbit trilogy came out. All of the orcs and dwarves and stuff were like all CGI. It was so disappointing because that was like my favorite thing about the original Lord of the Rings trilogy was like the raw, real prosthetics on people's faces. Right. I was at Nathan's house for his birthday mm -hmm. and he showed me probably the best movie I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. 30 years in the making. Mm. Mad God. Oh, I've seen that. Oh my god. That was the, the best thing I've ever seen. Oh my god, the like the the claymation thing? Yes. Yes. Oh, 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 Val. That oh, was Val. fantastic. Oh, I have I have some sights to show you. If you like that, oh my god, horrifying 
disturbing off-putting claymation is my jam. That's my jam. <laughs> Please oh send my- it to me. Oh my goodness gracious. One of my favorite artists are the the salad fingers guy because he does really yeah. fun claymation. And um this guy named uh Mr. Morgan's organs. So this is gonna be fun for both of us. I was like blown away by that oh movie. Oh my god. Like and the no dialogue, right? It's just all all visual. And my favorite thing to think about as I was watching it was like Because you know how it's about the little guy and he's like Mm -hmm. on his journey. And he Mm -hmm. kind of reminds me of the guy from the original Spongebob movie that's like bounty hunting them, you know. Because of the coat. It's the coat. Yeah. And I was (laughs) like, what if he's going through all of this like hell to get to the end and he's just kind of door dashing somebody's like McDonald's. (laughs) And then he has to turn around and go back and it's like, oh. Mm-hmm. You've got a $6 tip. Thank you for bringing that to, like, the bottom layer of mm-hmm. hell. That's honestly what it felt like. Yeah, because he just kind of does this little thing, and it's like, yeah. if but your DoorDasher dies, does they send another one? <laughs> Dude, yeah, I am so I happy. I'm, like, actually so excited that you've seen that movie. I never thought that I would, like, actually talk to another person who has watched something like that we finished it and i was like agape right oh my god because it's so good visceral and and it's gross i just love that it's gross yeah it was absolutely horrific (laughs) or is beyond my comprehension is how i would describe it oh my god oh my god that just like made my day (laughs) oh my god and multiple times throughout the movie nathan was like are you okay, Val? Like, we can turn this off if it's, like, too much. Like, I think he was getting self-conscious about the fact yeah. that it was something he's pitched to me. And yeah. I, like, was watching it now and having my own kind of reaction. And oh, I was yeah. like, no, like, I'm so into this. Like, yeah. this is the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and the fact that it took so long to make, 30 years, like, oh. that's something I would do, I feel like commit to one thing for that long right like you know it would be fun to to be an artist that people recognized but like also I kind of romanticized having projects and passions and kind of staying in my lane biding my time and then you know when I'm older just kind of putting it all out there but, like, yeah. I'm kind of using this time for, like, preparation. Yeah. can't believe you've yeah. also seen that. Yes, I am so excited. I am, I'm, like, because also, too, the fact that you've watched something like that, basically of your own volition, means that my my view of what we can discuss on this podcast has just expanded. Oh, yeah. I'm like, we could even discuss that movie in full kind of bit by bit, because oh. I have definitely a theory behind, you know, what I thought the message yeah. was. But me and my yeah. roommate, Chris, were talking about it. We were like, one thing can't describe that movie. Oh, honestly, it is just, I don't, I couldn't even describe it right now. <laughs> but yeah, because that's definitely more of just a moving painting oh instead of a movie movie, you know? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, anything claymation, I basically think of as a puppet show. Oh, my God. I used to do puppet shows up until (laughs) the eighth grade for my school projects with my friends. And I would sew all the puppets. And I wanted to do it in ninth grade for a project with my friend. And then my mom was like, Val, don't you think you're a little old for that? (laughs) (laughs) And then we never did it again. But what? I think she probably saved me from being bullied. So... I guess so. Puppets, puppets, puppets. But yeah, I might still have them. Oh Not all God. of them, but some of them. That's awesome. Um, I would even be happy with just a picture. Oh, I'll I'll do some digging into my phone's <laughs> camera yeah. roll. So I have about one more story left. Okay. So before Dog Soldiers was a twinkle in Neil's <laughs> eye. Oh, um, Neil. We should look up his views on women. Oh my god, we should! The UK was afflicted by the presence of a real werewolf. In 1952, one boy, Bill Ramsey, experienced a chill and an awful odor, possibly a malevolent spirit, that he believes was the start of his problems that would last for a good portion of his life. First of all, when I saw chill and bad odor, I was like, there's definitely just like a skunk around. Yeah, there's a skunk or his blood sugar is low. Yeah, I was like, this is already what it feels like sometimes when I have a pods episode, you know. <laughs> Mr. Ramsey is just a little sleepy. Yeah, which I've been doing pretty good lately because I've good. been drinking a ton of Gatorade and Powerade every single day to keep my electrolytes up because there were two other times I almost passed out this winter and then I was like Mm -hmm. damn it I should probably get on taking care of myself fluids and having a high salt diet help so the amount of McDonald's I eat (laughs) that's actually that's really good to know sometimes it gets you down you know but yeah I do recognize that it does help so I'm like uh I guess I'll drink all this Powerade. Their strawberry lemonade is actually really good. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you found like a solution. And now that you've told me, I can pester you periodically. So this works to your advantage. Trust me. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, everyone's always talking about staying hydrated, obviously, Mm -hmm. but it's with water. And like, I kind of need the Mm -hmm. Gatorade and Powerade. So I don't drink a lot of like straight water Mm -hmm. as much as I drink electrolyte drinks. Mm hmm. Which, honestly, it's a more fun experience. Um, (laughs) Just kind of interesting to me that, like, that's my normal, you know? Whereas everyone, like, else in the office is, like, has our water jugs and bottles (laughs) and stuff. So whether or not me and Bill Ramsey have the same condition is... (laughs) Well, I don't get any bad smells. So I'm like, (laughs) I don't know. Maybe he just let one go and he was like, oh, my God, what was that? He forgot. Yeah. So he led a mostly normal life until he started having regular nightmares when he got married in his 20s. One night in the 80s, when he went to the bathroom at a restaurant with his friends, he got the same chill as when he was younger. Oh. And when he looked in the mirror, he saw a werewolf looking back at him. And he's like, oh, like, I'm not feeling well. So oh he's like, damn, guys. 
I need to leave. So he gets in a taxi with one of his friends. And while he's in there, his hands formed claws and he bit his friend on the leg. And while the taxi driver tried to intervene, he exhibited superhuman strength. It's reported he had this during all of his episodes. And there was even one time where he went to the hospital and he out of nowhere bit his nurse. And it took multiple people to restrain him. And he was kind of a smaller dude. He was only about 5'7 and mm-hmm. probably less than 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. But he would just be able to take out these people six foot and above. Sometimes he knew these episodes were coming on when he got the chill. He was reported to ask the local police station to lock him in a cell whenever that feeling came on. And there was another time where he strangled a police officer because he couldn't explain his situation in time. Oh. And he was originally kind of going there seeking help, but the transformation had already happened. And he wouldn't, to other people, transform as a wolf, obviously, but that's allegedly how he saw himself and his, like, physique and actions would be very animalistic and honestly inefficient for how a person would move. Kind of like a weird girl you went to elementary school with type of vibe. (laughs) Yeah. It was very much like that. And he underwent testing like MRIs and scans, but no concrete diagnosis was ever made. Wow. And this was the 80s too. So I'm like, I feel mm-hmm. like if this allegedly happened today, mm-hmm. he could be mm-hmm. a case of the psychological term, like canthropy. Mm. And I think it was just kind of maybe untreated mental illness. Mm-hmm. But Because he was also as afflicted by his experiences as other people were. And his story caught the attention of none other than Ed and Lorraine Warren from Connecticut. And they thought this was a case of possession. Mm -hmm. So after they researched him a little and they even called local police stations in the UK and they were like, do you have a werewolf here? Because they couldn't really track him down at first. Because this was the 80s. So eventually they kind of catch up with him. They convince Bill Ramsey and his wife to fly to the US from London. Where one of the Warren's number one bishops performed an exorcism. And they even talk about in an interview like this is our number one guy. He is (laughs) such a holy man. Well, After that, I guess he's lived a normal life and hasn't had an episode since. Really? So I was kind of wondering about this, too. I was like, could it have been a ploy for money? Because originally Ramsey did sell his story to, I think it was somebody, like a newspaper for $20,000 at the time. Mm -hmm. I was also wondering, why carry out a lifelong hoax like that? So I thought it was possibly more so... Maybe undiagnosed mental illness might Mm -hmm. be the cause. And perhaps the exorcism had some type of placebo effect on him in a way. And I thought it was interesting, too, like how his wife kind of stuck by him throughout everything. So if you remember, he was having the nightmares in Mm -hmm. his 20s. And then 15 or so years later, he started having these like physical episodes in public. And just going to the police station and asking to be locked up. Like, that's pretty extreme behavior. And I just felt like it was Mm -hmm. somebody that was maybe suffering from, like, a psychotic disorder and could tell Mm -hmm. that sometimes they were themselves and sometimes they weren't. That's, like, what I was thinking, that it just sounds like 
like these really intense mood swings and and really complicated delusions. Definitely the delusions. To cope with what's happening. And of course, I think werewolves make plenty of sense if you're losing <laughs> your mind every, you know, 30 days. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I remember the story because I just know like Ed and Lorraine Warren lore on top of the fact that they um, kind of do a, a nod to it in um, Annabelle Homecoming. Is, is Annabelle Homecoming when the doll is at Ed and Lorraine Warren's house and it terrorizes the daughter? I think that's Annabelle Comes Home. Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. I just but put the same thing together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yes. Okay. So it's Annabelle comes home and I'm pretty sure when you see the wolf, it's basically like a wolf ghost or spirit that comes out of the fog. And that's what first gets that like potential boyfriend who's like trying to play the guitar. And then at the end, when they're trying to leave the house, it like corners them. So you only see it a couple times. But to my knowledge, that is the only werewolf that the that Ed and Lorraine Warren have ever had connections to. So it makes the most sense that it's supposed to be like that exercised spirit of that guy. Yeah, you're right about that being their only wolf case. And I was watching interviews of them. Mm -hmm. And Lorraine says, like, we're so proud of this case because I guess wow. it did help the guy out. According to them, yeah. you know, a lot of our sources on them is themselves. Um, <laughs> Facts. Because also dealing with, like, the paranormal and stuff, there's only so much we can document. Um, right. And it's not like the werewolf guy is very eager to give testimony. Yeah, like, I guess his last public appearance was in 1992, and since then he's kind of just led a quiet life. What appeals to me so much is the mysticism and is the stuff that just seems a little bit too real that I'm like, ooh, I don't think I like that. Yeah, and I love how folklore is just spread. And it was mm -hmm. so cool researching how, you know, it kind of began in Europe and then it traveled mm -hmm. over to Canada and then it made its way down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I hope you do like vampires because they have a very similar kind of structure where depending on the region, they all have a different name, different rules. Um, like uh, Strigoi, I believe, is like the Russian vampire and he has his own build and everything, not like Dracula. Um, and then uh, the, China has their own vampire and I don't know what it's called, but it's a jumping vampire and it's terrifying and if you look into it i have a movie you should watch Ooh, i wonder <laughs> are any of the vampire depictions in what we do in the shadows representations of this because you know oh. how in the first couple episodes there's like mm. one living in their basement and that one's very kind of nosferatu and yeah. then there's the sire and then there's yep. somebody else that's oh um the baron Yes, you know. yes. So in, in my opinion, the movie is much more vampire accurate 
but the show is very very fun i I agree with the fun (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i remember i saw the movie when it came out and i remember i didn't like it as much and the show is just so seamless but the movie has all of the archetypes of vampires with like the tall Nosferatu and the Strigoi and like the mindless vampire who just kills people. <laughs> and I just feel like sometimes I'm Colin Robinson at work <laughs> trying to make small talk with people. I love that. And just like I... all my little one-liners <laughs> that I shoot at people. <laughs> I love that so much. See, I feel like um, I really enjoy uh, Nadja, but I yes. really enjoy doll Nadja just the fact that she can articulate her joints is amazing I support the presence of any puppet so uh, I could talk about what we do in the shadows all the time I'm constantly making references to it Um, (laughs) the amount of times I say unforeseen riches (laughs) (laughs) honestly it's making me want to rewatch like the entire show my favorite episode that I watch at least once a day this oh. one is called The Curse, and it's when they get the creepy pasta and they think it's a real <laughs> cursed email. Oh. And yes. Nanja's like, I'm gonna send it right back to her bloody Mary at AOL.com. See how she <laughs> likes it. And that to me is just like peak comedy. Like <laughs> I find it so funny. Me in my bed under my little heated blanket, just watching it. <laughs> so my last little tidbit was. A lot of these things have already been disproven mm-hmm. in general. Like, I was researching the Loch Ness Monster the other day, and it was like, oh. yeah, everybody knows it's fake. Yeah. So I was like, well, like, I kind of want to still look at things like that from a historical standpoint. Oh, okay. But also kind of include what they actually are or what they could be. So one thing I was also looking into was what could these sightings most of the time be mm-hmm. so some people think it can be if you see a werewolf a mangy bear mm-hmm. a regular wolf or a large dog wolf dog coyote wolf dog. they're just all wolf dogs <laughs> i um, mean i kind of believe that and some people even try to pitch that well if the wolf really was that big is the dire wolf still around Ooh. So, of course, I had to look into this. I want Megalodon to be real so badly. And this Mm -hmm. was, like, the next thing. So, (laughs) dire wolves are extinct, but they were apex predators during the late Pleistocene, which for non-geologists is a little over 100,000 years ago. And they went extinct about 10,000 years ago, not too long after the last glacial maximum ice age. Their existence actually co-occurs partly with the smaller cousin, Grey Wolf. And they're both canines, but their evolution differed a couple million years ago. And they belong to different genuses, actually. The direwolves hunted in packs of 30 or more. They were huge. They had bigger bones than Grey Wolves. It was said they could eat and like tear through bones so fast. Because part of what they think the ecology was back then was predators had to eat fast before another predator tried to challenge their catch. So that's why they were a little more adapted to just bite through the bones. I just feel like their presence now would be felt. 
today, gray wolves are no longer considered endangered in the United States, but red wolf numbers are more threatened. And I feel like if we had giant packs of giant wolves, there would be more sightings. Mm -hmm. and it just doesn't seem likely that it would be the extinct dire wolf secretly persisted for the past 12,000 years at least because they went extinct about 10,000 years ago which is a bummer so that's why I like the wolf dog hypothesis they're all wolf dogs (laughs) yes to wrap up my segment I'll leave you with the quote from Shakira (laughs) This is not a joke. This is lycanthropy. I think we can just record ourselves saying goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's the show. We we did it, guys. We did it once. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. (laughs) 